Welcome to In the Oil Patch, presented by Shale Magazine and sponsored by Steer. Broadcasting today from Agreco Studios. Agreco, powering the Permian. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch. Welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Pilato, and today we have a great show lined up for you. We actually have our resident energy expert and editor of Shell Magazine, David Blackman, who will be joining us. But first, I want to talk to you about the latest issue of Shell Magazine. Our cover, this issue, is ConocoPhillips, in which we talk a little bit about the amazing company, their great work that they did in handling Hurricane Harvey, and of course, the chairman and CEO, Ryan Lance as well. It's an issue that you definitely want to read. So I encourage you to go to shellmag.com. Again, that's S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com and read all about ConocoPhillips and Ryan Lance. And now it's time to bring on our resident energy expert and editor of Shell Magazine, David Blackman. David, welcome to the show. Hey, it's a rainy day in Texas. I was wondering if you were going to say it's another. Well, it kind of depends if you need rain uh, for your yard or uh, right about now. I don't think the farmers want any more rain either, but I'm sure there are some people in Texas that love the rain. Oh, possibly these um, repair shops that fix um, wrecked vehicles when they get into accidents in the rain. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> they're, they're doing a land office business right now, that's for sure. Oh, yes, they're doing lots of business. Well, uh, let's get started with um, the show. I'm glad you're joining me for the whole entire show this week because there's a lot to me cover. Too. There's a lot of, you know, we're, we're coming right up to uh, the election. Um, there's also a lot going on with Saudi Arabia. There's a lot going on in, in energy. There's a lot going on in, in Trump's world. So I'm glad that we're going to get to enjoy the entire show Um, and for our listeners this is a treat because we normally don't get to all of this stuff so in depth but this is going to be one of those great shows that we're going to we're going to get to it all today so starting off let's talk about a new report that came out from the u.s energy information administration and this week's projects that oil production from u.s shell formations alone will rise about a hundred thousand barrels of oil per day in november and reach an amazing total of 7.71 million barrels per day for the month. Now, this means that two-thirds of U.S. oil production is coming from shell formations. That's huge. Let's talk about this incredible development. Yeah, you know, and it is incredible. It's a decade ago, 10 years ago, uh, you had a few hundred thousand barrels a day of oil oil being produced from the upper Bakken shale, and that was the only oil-producing shale formation in the United States of America. And then Petrohawk drilled the initial Goodwell uh, into the Eagle Ford shale in South Texas in October 10 years ago, and we'll talk about that later on. Uh, And since that time, in a decade, we've gone from almost no production from shale uh, in terms of crude oil, to closing in on 8 million barrels a day, two-thirds of the country's production uh, in a decade. Uh, and just to put that in context, I did a little research. 7.71, you know, t- today the United States is the largest oil producer on the face of the earth. We're, we're producing more oil now than 
Russia or Saudi Arabia. But just our shale production alone in crude oil would make us the third largest oil producing country on the face of the earth. That's more oil than is produced by Iraq or Iran or China or any other country other than Saudi Arabia or Russia. It's all coming from these shale formations that were producing nothing 10 years ago. So it's, it's an extraordinary, it's an amazing story of te technology, uh, horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing and marrying those two technologies up and finding the best way to access as much of the rock as you possibly can and going from drilling you know, quarter mile long horizontal laterals in these horizontal wells to now horizontal laterals that are three miles long in some of these formations and even longer. Um, and it's just, a, it's it's an amazing, amazing story of, of innovation by a lot of very smart people in the oil and gas industry and, uh, and the deployment of all this high technology. And uh, it's, it's just something that you can only do in America uh, because other countries won't allow companies to go in and do it. I mean, we still uh, have, you know, there, there's a shale play in England that uh, the government won't let anybody access. China has you know, who knows how much uh, shale rock under under the ground in China. And it's a fairly closed country still, and nobody's able to get in there and really access it. In South America and Africa, there's shale plays all over the world. They're not just in the United States, but because of the nature of our society and our government, we're the country showing everybody else on the face of the earth how to do it. And let's back up a little bit also, because I think it's important for us to remember this wasn't the case. Now, we talked about this is technology that's coming online and it's finally here, which is awesome. But there was also a period of time in the 70s in which we found ourselves in a very uncomfortable situation. Um, and the United States was really, and we've had, we have been for quite some time, dependent on other countries like Saudi Arabia for our oil resources. So take me back. Let's go back to that period of time and just kind of discuss what happened and what was the negative outcome for us when we are not producing our own oil through shell productions and, and other forms such as offshore as well. Let's go back in that time. One of my favorite anecdotes about the oil and gas industry is in 1977, our country was importing one third of the oil we needed to uh, to feed our national economy that we used every day. One third, 33%. And President Jimmy Carter declared that to be a national emergency okay? and put in price controls and all sorts of crazy big government measures that, that only served to make things worse. But then you, you fast forward to 2006, and we were importing two-thirds of our daily oil usage in 2006, almost almost 70% uh, for a couple of months there. And nobody thought twice about it, okay? And, and the government at the time, you know, the Congress was very much against uh, encouraging oil production, even though President Bush wanted to. Um, and, but that was before we figured out how to get oil out of these shale formations. Today, we're, we're importing less than 25% of what we need on a daily basis. So, and that's thanks to the ability to produce it all uh, from these shale plays. And so it's been an amazing transition. It's only going to get better. I mean, oh, uh, yeah. there's a projection this week uh, from, from the EIA that uh, here by 2020 or 2021, 
we're going to be producing another 3 million barrels a day from shale formations around the country. We're going to be over 10 million barrels a day from shale formations alone in the United States. And so that, that dependence, when you see what's happening in Saudi Arabia and, and some of these other countries that are big oil producers, Iran is a huge oil producer, and you see what's happening over there and how unstable it is, the less reliant we are on that part of the world and other parts of the world for our daily needs, the better off and more secure we are as a country. Couldn't agree with you more. I think it also has a lot to do with when you look at why we look at the Middle East and, of course, these uh, countries that um, provide us um, these resources. Um, There just always seems to be a lot of conflict and it always spills over into the U.S. as well. And we get involved in it, whether we want to or not. And um, I think this is another opportunity for us to look and and maybe not have so much investment out there and, and, and look to our own resources as well. Um, now, we are going to take a quick break, but when we return, you know, we're speaking about how many barrels of oil we're putting out in the shell place, but there's also been a lot of fluctuation once again in the price of, of course, oil. So I want to get back on that topic again. So, but we do have to take a quick break. You are listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. In the Oil Patch Radio Show is proud to bring you this week's Energy Minute produced by shalemag.com. Here's Texas Railroad Commissioner Ryan Sitton with your current industry update. This is Texas Railroad Commissioner Ryan Sitton with your Energy Minute. Between slowing economies, reduced demand, growing stockpiles, and a stock market sell-off, oil prices continue to get pushed down. Over the past few weeks, U.S. crude inventories have grown by 22.5 million barrels, the biggest growth since 2015. At that time, oil markets had substantial oversupplies, which led to the massive drop in oil prices that bottomed at $27 per barrel in 2016. This oversupply is primarily focused on the U.S. as it is producing record high amounts of crude. However, as the IEA and OPEC have both revised their demand growth numbers, there are concerns blossoming of oversupplies in the broader market. WTI lost another $1.40 to end yesterday at $68.65 per barrel. This is Ryan and that's your Energy Minute. Listen to In the Oil Patch Radio and keep up with the oil and gas industry online at shalemag.com. Agreco has been powering the Permian Basin for over 10 years, supporting Permian producers with temporary power to get their product to market. When utility power is not available, Agreco is your reliable alternative. Agreco supports power systems as small as a single 200 kilowatt to as large as a 50 megawatt power plant. So when your utility power is delayed, call on Agreco to engineer a diesel, natural gas, or battery solution to fit your needs. We have immediate availability right here in the Permian Basin. Call 1-800-AGRECO or online agreco.com. The vision of the Women's Energy Network is to be the premier organization that educates, attracts, retains, and develops professional women working across the value chain. Also known as WEN, our mission is to develop programs that provide networking opportunities and foster career and leadership development of women who work in the energy industry. Thousands of women are breaking ground in energy industry careers every year, and 4,000 of them are already members of the Women's Energy Network across our 14 chapters. Members receive exclusive access to mentoring, job boards, group discussions, member-only networking events, expert speaking engagements, and more. Join today by visiting womensenergynetwork.org slash Houston or call 1-855-390-0650. The Women's Energy Network, empowering women in energy. 
Farmers and ranchers are the hardest working people on earth and deserve a side-by-side -side vehicle that works just as hard. That's why Yamaha makes the Viking an all-new Viking 6, the world's first true three and six person UTVs assembled in America. Ranked number one in drivetrain durability, Viking outworks and outclasses the competition in features, comfort, and off-road capability. For more, visit YamahaViking.com. Most dependable claim based on a 2013 Yamaha Source side-by-side -side owner study. Oil Field Experts is the only place you need to go to locate any part, any time for your automotive or oil field equipment needs. Specializing in hard-to-find oil field parts for your fleet maintenance needs, Oil Field Experts have been providing parts and accessories to keep your tools turning since 1965. From the auto repair shop to the pump jack, call us to get the right part right now. Here's the number, so write it down. Oil Field Experts, 210-471-1923. We're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is David Blackman, the editor of Shell Magazine. David, um, before the break, we were talking about, um, of course, how much shell producers are producing here in the United States through the shell formations. But we've also had a lot of a lot of activity in the past month of just prices going up and down. It's very unstable in reference to. Uh, the price is going up and down. And I think there's a lot of media hype on what will the price go to or yeah. what is it going to be next week? So I want to get uh, your idea on two weeks ago, WTI was sitting at $75 per barrel. This week it fell all the way down to 69. So why are we seeing such turbulence? What is going on? Yeah, it, it is kind of amazing. We all of a sudden have had a, a lot of volatility really over the last month and a half or so uh, where Prior to that, we'd had a very stable, just very slow rise in the, the price of crude all year long. And the market has become a little unstable. There's There's been a lot of uh, doubts created about uh, where the global economy is going. Uh, growth seems to be slowing a bit over in Asia. Uh, the trade war between the United States and China keeps getting a little you know, nastier all the time. And uh, that seems to be slowing the Chinese economy somewhat. Uh, and then this week you had this, this report from from uh, the federal government, from the Energy Department, that we'd had a pretty significant build in crude oil inventories here in the United States, and that combined with all the, the news out of Iran and Saudi Arabia this week, just uh, people in the market kind of panicked, and there was a big sell-off. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot of explanations, uh, actually very – uh, rational explanations on why we had that crude build and probably the inventories will go back down next week and the price will go back up. But that's just kind of what happens in the market. You never know where it's going on a daily or weekly basis. And uh, and the other thing, of course, that happened this week too, late last week and early this week, was a very significant drop-off in the stock market. And so as you see that when you have a big sell-off in the stock market, you tend to have a pretty significant sell-off in crude stocks too. So, <laughs> you know, it's just all these different things. So, but I still, when you really look at everything, just like I keep saying every week, um, the the inertia behind crude prices still, I think, overall is is in favor of 
steadily rising crude oil prices. So I still think we're going to end up around $75 at the end of the year on WTI. And we are still waiting to the end of the year to see. We believe after 30 years of being in the business, you know what you're talking about. We believe we will end at around $75 more or less somewhere in there and not the big media hype of 100 Dollars a barrel. No, we're not going to have hundred dollars. I saw some idiot saying we're going to have four hundred dollar oil (laughs) early in the week, and I'm like, almost fell off my chair. No, we're not going to have that. Sorry. Well, I saw two hundred, but that's because of another uh, situation that I want to get into with Saudi Arabia, of course, and uh, literally the the stuff that's happening right now with the apparent murder of Jamal Khashoggi. As the situation develops, uh, what impact can we expect in the energy markets? Yeah, it's it's very interesting. It's a, it's a very um, distressing situation, and I think um, it's good that the president waited, uh, you know, to have evidence in hand uh, before he just lashes out rashly, like some member of Congress have done, um, Lindsey Graham in particular. Uh, has been very vocal about just, you know, uh, before any real evidence had been presented, um, you know, saying he was just going to go sanction the hell out of him, I think was a direct quote. Then you had the media going crazy and, and really pressing uh, the president to take some really dramatic rash actions. And uh, I think he took the, the right steps in sending Mike Pompeo, the secretary of state over there, to press the Saudi government and then the Turkish government, uh, who are you know, conducting their own investigation in it. And uh, I think at the end of the day, you're going to have to, the United States government has a lot of economic and security entanglements with the Saudi government. And in order to keep all of those deals and accommodations in place, uh, the Saudi government is going to have to uh, do something very significant in response to this. If it turns out that this was a government-sanctioned operation, and whoever's responsible for it, the Saudi government is going to have to severely punish and possibly remove from office, even including Mohammed bin Salman, you know, the crown prince, who is, there's allegations out here that he ordered the whole operation to take place. If that turns out to be the case, then, you know, there's going to have to be something very significant done in order for the kingdom to maintain its relationships with the United States. And I think President Trump has made that clear. And, um, you know, if you end up having the United States put major sanctions on Saudi Arabia, that could have extremely significant impacts uh, on global oil markets. Um, So it's it's a delicate situation. And. so far, the administration, I think, has, has handled it as well as possible, and we'll just have to wait and see how it all works out in the coming weeks. A- any chance that um, Saudi Arabia might uh, say they're, depending on you know how high up uh, in the um, family, uh, or pr- how far up it goes into the uh, ladder of the royalty, how, is there any chance that they are not willing to do anything? And, of course, this puts up, President Trump in the United States in a very bad position, but I'm just curious. No, I don't, I don't really think they'll be in a position to not do anything. I don't think they can maintain that position because they're too reliant on the United States for their security interests. For example, there is a pending arms sale that the United States has an agreement with Saudi Arabia to permit 
$109 billion arms sale. Saudi Arabia is involved in a war in Yemen, and the United they are they desperately need that military equipment from the United States. And in order to maintain that, if it turns out this was a government-sanctioned operation, uh, somebody's going to have to pay a price for that in order to keep that deal in place. And keep, you know, the United States also provides a, a lot of security operations from our own military in the Middle East that Saudi Arabia is very reliant on. Um, so, you know, it, there's all of these things out there. There's all sorts of economic agreements between the two countries that Saudi Arabia really wants to maintain in place. So it's a tough situation and a lot of a lot of diplomacy is going to go back and forth before this is all done. Very, very interesting. Well, when we get back, I want to move uh, topics a little bit, switch gears, and get into the discussion on China, because that's also very, very interesting. But we do have to take a quick break. You are listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. Shale Oil & Gas Business Magazine is the one-stop shop that'll keep you in front of the customers that you need to grow your business. So let's start growing your business in Texas. Email us, info at shalemag.com. Again, that's info at shale, S-H-A-L-E, mag, M-A-G, dot com. And we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bilotto, and today we are joined by David Blackman, the editor of Shell Magazine. And David, before uh, the break, we were talking about Saudi Arabia and, of course, all the things that are unfolding. However, I want to switch gears and get on China, too, because there's apparently a lot going on in China, too. They've apparently stopped importing U.S. oil in August uh, as a part of the growing trade war. So, you know, when that starts happening, uh, China stops uh, importing U.S. oil. To me, it, it, it's a problem. It's it's a big problem. But how much is this really going to hurt us? And how much more do you see they will continue to push in the trade war? Yeah, uh, well, that's the big question, right? I mean, how much longer is that going to go on? Or how much longer can they afford to go on like this? Well, and that's the thing is it's getting to the point uh, – where China is going to have to start making some hard decisions whether they want to continue this or not, because it, their economy is the one being impacted, not the United States. They're much more reliant on our markets than we are on theirs as a country, right? But in as far as impacting the oil and gas uh, market here in the United States and the exporters here, in the short term, there's going to be some fairly significant displacement. And I think, you know, probably a significant part of that inventory build that we saw this week is is some of this crude oil that was scheduled to go to China probably is going into storage while these exporters negotiate other deals uh, with other markets. But people, when you think about this in the long term, the displacement isn't going to be that much uh, for, the, for the exporters because crude oil is a global fungible commodity and China has to get its crude oil from somewhere. So if they were exporting X hundred thousand barrels a day from the United States before August, well, in August, they had to go get that same amount of oil from somewhere else. And by doing that, they created a demand somewhere else on the face of the earth 
for crude oil that could come from the United States. And so what's, you know, what's happening with the exporters is they're having to identify where those vacuums have been created now and go out and contact those markets and try to sell their crude into those markets. So in the long run, that's what's all going to happen. It's all going to shake out and equal out. And, you know, uh, because everybody on the face of the earth is using oil, so the demand is still there. It's just you have to identify who those customers are and what volumes they're willing to take from you and get it over there. So, and at the end of the day, you know, we're still uh, exports, overall exports by the United States are continuing to go up each month. So it's not like it's the end of the world for United States exporters. Right. Well, I mean, it's just who does China want to make the check out to? And obviously they don't want to make it out to any U.S. oil companies. Right. <laughs> they prefer right, exactly. <laughs> but it's all the same thing. We're going to supply those people you're buying from anyway, um, typically. Also on the subject of China, there were two, they announced two strategic oil and gas development partnerships this week. One was with Brazil's Petrobras and another with Norway's Equinor, which is also formerly known as Statoil. And what are their goals in making these deals? Well, China's very smart, uh, and, and this is just a continuation of their strategy that they have implemented over the last 10 to 15 years, where they are entering into these sorts of global development deals with, with other countries, national oil companies like Petrobras and Equinor, and also with private companies to gain ownership of minerals in other parts of the world for their ultimate use there in China. Um, it, people, Most people don't know it, but, but uh, China's national oil company actually owns working interest in hundreds of Eagle Ford shale wells. They did a uh, joint uh, agreement, joint development agreement with uh, Chesapeake Energy in either 2010 or 2011 and went in joint venture with them on a lot of Chesapeake's operations. And and so a lot, a lot of those Eagle Ford wells in the, in the western part of the play uh, are partly owned by China. And so they're in the United States and they're in other parts of the United States as, as well. So it's a very, you know, very intelligent society. They know they're going to need these energy resources and they just systematically enter into agreements like this and development agreements. And, and so the deal with Petrobras, Petrobras is actually going to come into China and help them develop their own shale resources there, you know, on the continent there in China. Uh, and with Equinor, they're going to develop minerals in other parts of the world in other countries. So it's, it's very smart, very organized country. And uh, it's just more of what they've been doing for quite a while. Very interesting. And with that, David, we do have to take a quick break. But when we return, I want to get on the topic of pipelines. You are listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. Oilfield Experts is the only place you need to go to locate any part, any time for your automotive or oilfield equipment needs. Specializing in hard-to-find oil-filled parts for your fleet maintenance needs, from the auto repair shop to the pump jack, call us to get the right part right now. Here's the number, so write it down. Oil-filled experts, 210-471-1923. And we're back. 
You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is David Blackman, editor of Shell Magazine. And David, um, we I want to I want to talk a little bit about pipelines because obviously there's a lot of discussion, especially in Permian Basin, with infrastructure and um, the ability to not have enough. Um, there's not enough pipelines to uh, currently right now to help um, the the demand out there in the Permian Basin. So recently there was another pipeline. It's called the Jupiter line that has been funded to carry a big amount of the Permian Basin oil to the Gulf Coast. And this one is going to be going to uh, Brownsville, the port of Brownsville. And how is that going to work? Yeah. So, you know, this is one of a dozen major pipelines, you know, that are being funded and ultimately will be built to bring oil and natural gas out of the Permian to the Gulf Coast. Um, and, and so going to Brownsville is an interesting thing. You know, uh, it's it, this is a big line, too. This this line is uh, going to have a capacity of a million barrels a day, which is one of the biggest lines I'm aware of coming out of the Permian. Um, and it's a billion-dollar project. So, so how this is going to work, they're going to take the oil out of the Permian, uh, take it down to Brownsville. They've also... Uh, obtained permits to build a tank farm down there so they can store the crude oil and a loading facility at the port uh, so that they're able to bring in uh, tankers up to 65,000 ton displacement and load the crude oil on those tankers and ship it out, you know, and export it. Um, So they're getting serious about oil. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, I suspect some of it will also, there's a, there's an oil pipeline that takes, crude oil into Mexico there at the border. And I, I suspect there will probably be an interconnect to ship some of it into Mexico. But but right now, you know, the great majority of it, again, just like uh, most of the oil that's going to Corpus Christi in Houston is going to end up being exported. And uh, that's just the, the growth part of the business right now. So, you know, the, what's so interesting to me is right now, as you mentioned, we, we do have a shortage of capacity coming out of the Permian and right uh, the, the most recent number I saw was really the, the pipeline capacity is about 400,000 barrels a day less than what's being produced out there in the Permian. So you have this shortage. Over the next two years, you're going to have six or seven big pipelines come online, and they're not only going to satisfy <laughs> the, the, the production, but they're also going to now create a glut of pipeline capacity. So in two or three years from now, we're actually going to have a bunch of pipelines that have a lot of spare capacity on them coming out of the Permian Basin. Now, that's okay because production out of the Permian, as we mentioned earlier, is going to keep growing and ultimately will fill them up. We're going to go from a, a, a significant shortage that's going to last about a year to a very big glut of capacity uh, over the next two years. And that's that's just going to be a real interesting situation for the midstream market to, to absorb. The, the shippers are going to be happy, the producers because their transportation rates, there's going to be a ton of competition all of a sudden, and their cost of transportation is likely to go down as a result. And so it's just going to be real interesting to see how these these midstream companies deal with all of that in, the, in that short term where they have so much spare capacity. Very interesting. It seems like it's a cycle, though, of, of energy. You have not enough sand, and then you have an abundance of sand. You, have enough, you don't have enough pipelines, and you have an abundance. But I do also want to say that you know, pipelines, they seem to always be in the news, and there always seems to be a lot of controversy. But truly, pipelines 
is still the safest way of transporting this commodity. Oh, by far. I mean, it's yeah, it's not close. I mean, you, you, the only alternatives are to ship it by rail or by trucks, right? Right. And, so, and we don't want either okay. one of those <laughs> exposed to no, us. No, because, I mean, think about it. If you have hundreds of big trucks on the highways, people are going to complain about traffic jams, right? And they should. Uh, if you have trains, uh, trains are the least safe way to transport crude oil. We've had, I don't know how many very significant uh, train derailments with loads of crude oil in North America over the last six or seven years. And, and, and several of them have resulted in fatalities. Um, you don't want that. Pipelines, you know, uh, I mean, every aspect of every business has safety concerns, right? Couldn't agree with you more. Changing gears, uh, Energy Secretary Rick Perry has been pushing a proposal that would prevent the closing of these older coal-fired power plants um, due to national security concerns. Uh, there was a report this week, though, that President Trump had rejected this plan. And so is that report true? Yeah, I think it, I, Yeah, I think that report is true, apparently. Uh, the president doesn't like the plan, doesn't, doesn't think it's necessary. Frankly, it's not necessary. Um, these older coal-fired plants, you know, should be retired, and most of the operating the companies that operate them had already made plans to retire them and replace them with natural gas-fired power plants that burn a lot cleaner and and uh, are cost competitive right now because natural gas costs are so low. And uh, Governor Perry, you know, had 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 that proposal out there that would have, you know, had the federal government come in and actually require them to to stay operational, which uh, I just think the president decided uh, on the advice of, of some of his other advisors that he just didn't really want to have the government interfering in the free market like that. What do you think, Secretary, uh, Energy Secretary Rick Perry, what, why, why did he want these older coal plants to stay open? Uh, you'd have to ask him. I, I don't know. I, I just, I never thought it was a good idea. I, I wrote a couple of pieces about it myself. Um, it just never made any sense. Uh, his his rationale, the rationale at the energy department was that, you know, they because coal plant you have this, they typically have a at least a month's inventory of coal on site. That in a national emergency where there were disruptions in the transportation of of all these fuel sources, they would have enough fuel on site to keep running in a national emergency. Well, that just doesn't make any sense, and, and it just is not a situation that's ever happened before. And uh, I just think that the president realized that and, and decided he didn't want to intercede in the economy that way. Well, that's kind of interesting because I would think that, that closing these older coal-fired power plants would be better to promote natural gas in the environment as well. Yeah, there's no question about it. The, the emissions are going to be a lot less from a gas-fired plant. And, you know, they're, they're a lot more modern. And the problem with the older generation of coal plants is you just can't, it, it becomes so expensive to put the new scrubber equipment on there to, to get the emissions out of them that it just isn't, you know, it's not economic for the operators of those plants to keep them open. And that's why they were being closed. Very interesting. Very interesting. David, uh, we have to take a quick break. When we return, this will be our last segment. And I want to talk about uh, the 10-year anniversary for the Eagle Ford Shale when we return. 
You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. The vision of the Women's Energy Network is to be the premier organization that educates, attracts, retains, and develops professional women working across the value chain. Join today by visiting womensenergynetwork.org slash Houston or call 1-855-390-0650. Any business can benefit from advertising to the oil and gas industry, but it's really important to partner with a marketing company that has a proven track record with this growing industry. Shale Oil & Gas Business Magazine is the one-stop shop that'll keep you in front of the customers that you need to grow your business. So let's start growing your business in Texas. Email us, info at shalemag.com. Again, that's info at shale, S-H-A-L-E, mag, M-A-G, dot com. Or you can call us, 210-240-7188. Again, that's 210-240-7188. And we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is David Blackman, editor of Shell Magazine. David, before the break, we were talking about uh, Energy Secretary Rick Perry. And I want to stay on him for just a little bit more. He was in San Antonio on Friday to help celebrate the 10-year anniversary for the first successful well completion in the Eagle Ford Shell Formation. Now, you did a lot of work on behalf of the energy industry with big trade associations like ANGA. So during the early days of the Eagle Ford development, give me some of the memories that you have that you can share on how um, Eagle Ford kind of came to be. Yeah, and I was I involved in all of that at the beginning. I was working for El Paso Corporation uh, as their director of government affairs and got involved in uh, a statewide effort with one of the national trade associations. It, it was called ANGA, America's Natural Gas Alliance. And, and I was the state lead on that for, for a couple of years during the early part of the Eagle Ford development. And it was just such a gratifying thing to be involved in all of that because I grew up in South Texas, grew up in Beeville. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, this what has always been, uh, you know, an economically kind of uh, not very active part of the world became this amazing, uh, rapidly developing economic development area. Uh, I know Dr. Tunstall did a study early on and uh, around 2011, 2012, in which he determined it was one of the most active economic development regions on the face of the earth at that time. And, and so, you know, you go from 20 active wells in that region to 275 in two to three years. And, uh, you know, just, it was a very exciting time to be involved down there. That first well um, was drilled by Petrohawk, a company called Petrohawk um, in October of, of 2008. They were actually expecting to drill a natural gas well, and all of a sudden, crude oil comes up out of the ground. They're like, Eureka! Right, and so they had an oil well instead. They were in the western part of the play there, and uh, within about a year, uh, all these other companies, uh, along with PetroHawk, were drilling wells, and they figured out that, oh my gosh, here you have this formation where you have this one-third of it on the northwest end that's strictly crude oil, and then the middle third is really rich, uh, condensate-rich natural gas, and then the eastern third was uh, dry natural gas. 
And um, to watch that all develop and all these great companies come in there like Anadarko Petroleum and ConocoPhillips and EOG Resources and Chesapeake Energy and, you know, on and on and on um, and be involved in all that was just a really great experience. We, uh, we did a lot of good community work uh, down there uh, in the region, I think, for several years before Anga ended up folding up and and being merged into API, and uh, it was a really great time. Really uh, met a lot of really wonderful people uh, down there in South Texas, and, uh, and then, you know, towards the end there, I, I ended up playing a role in, in, in helping uh, with the creation of STEER, you know, which has become a real dynamic organization and a, and a, a fantastic representative for the industry down there in the Eagle Ford. And uh, I'm really proud of my involvement in that. So, you know, it's just all uh, a lot of history down there, and it's been wonderful to see it all develop. You've definitely had a very big part in playing with two of the largest trade associations covering South Texas. And I want to, you know, just discuss from a consumer perspective, from an individual perspective, you know, you're right about Eagle Ford Shell. Nothing was really happening except uh, Corpus Christi and the Coastal Bend was a tourist town. And Eagle Ford, uh, the rural area in between San Antonio and the Coastal Bend was pretty much farmland and very, very quiet. Um, and then, of course, there's San Antonio. And, and now you look at it and uh, we have this was a game changer for many families pertaining to uh, now they actually have uh, their royalty right owners. They they are enjoying life, I'm sure. Uh, very, very much. Their children will be able to afford to go to college. Corpus Christi is no longer just a tourist town. It basically is a huge, is having a huge economic impact with um, the Eagle Ford Shell. And San Antonio was also a benefactor of all of the resources, even though there's not drilling. Um, They've got some major service companies and major oil companies that are actually in Eagle Ford. So, when we when I think about Eagle Ford, I realize we have these great uh, companies that have come in there and really, uh, you know, laid uh, the groundwork and and came in and made Eagle Ford successful. But it also, along with them providing a resource that we absolutely need in the United States, they also provided the whole entire region an economic windfall. Not not and also not just for of course the region but also for the state of Texas yeah, also too. Yeah, for the state, big time, yes. And, and and you know when I look at it, I, I couldn't be prouder just because there was so much that went into uh, what Texas, what that community, what those cities, what those little rural towns received from these oil and gas companies and the service companies. And uh, I don't know if uh, if we really ever put that together, that it was uh, it, it was it, it, we should be celebrating the 10th year anniversary. And it was a huge success for all of us. Um, and I'm glad to see that you were a part of it through Anga and through Steer and, of course, your 30 years. And I'm glad that you're our resident energy expert to help us get through this. Thank you for, for giving us some insightful memories of the Eagle Ford Shell as well. And with that, David, thank you for being a guest and taking us down memory lane on Eagle Ford. We look forward to having you back next week as we talk more about energy and politics. Great. I'll look forward to it. Thanks again, David, for being a guest on our show. And congratulations, because you are the topic of today's trivia question. 
Be the first person to email the correct answer to this trivia question to radio at shellmag.com and you will have a chance to win a $75 gift certificate to Fogo de Chao, the amazing Brazilian steakhouse. Today's trivia question is, what year anniversary is the Eagle Ford Shell Formation celebrating? Be the first person to email the correct answer to this trivia question to radio at shellmag.com and you will have a chance to win a $75 gift certificate to Fogo de Chao, the amazing Brazilian steakhouse. I'd like to encourage our listeners, if you have a question, we are here to answer it. If you have a question, no matter how simple or how difficult you think it might be, please email us at radio at shellmag.com. Again, that's radio at shellmag.com. And we will have our resident energy expert, David Blackman, answer it for you. But that is all the time we have for this show. Please be sure to like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash in the oil patch. And follow us on Twitter at ShellMag. And also be sure to go to ShellMag.com and sign up for our free newsletter. Again, that's S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com and sign up for our free newsletter. That is going to wrap up another great show. We'll see you next week with more exciting news and insightful interviews. Until then, adios. In the Oil Patch is where together we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.